honest with you guys? Good with that? I was like, I don't, I don't know what, can we say no? I got, no, you can't. We're going to do it anyway. Um, man, sometimes I struggle to believe that my life, this life, this stuff matters. Anybody else? Anybody struggle with just like, does, 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 do I matter? Does, does what I'm doing matter? Does, how I'm, does my job matter? Would anybody care if I was gone? Like, uh, are my efforts in vain? Like, and you might be like, geez, Jordan, like, if, like, like you have a, a ministry job. Like, it should be really easy to see how, how your life matters. And in a lot of ways, it is. But then, in just as many ways, it's, it's like, man, another news report about people that are supposed to be on our team really making a mess of things, right? Abusing Christianity, abusing God's word, abusing their authority. Another news report about tragedy, another thing. And it can take a toll on my own heart and on my own, like, drive and and zeal for life, right? Not to mention the personal things, the personal struggles and discouragement and all of the identity and all of the demons, you know, all the things that we can wrestle with inside. Uh, That that is just uh, something that I think is um, perhaps common or perhaps universal if not uh, at the very least common um why am i here i mean that's just a question that i I think uh, humans have been asking from the very beginning of time right that uh really that question in and of itself is probably one of the things that that kind of separates us as humans from the rest of creation right like, nobody's ever observed their dog just being, like, really depressed and just worried about why, what is the meaning of life, right? And having this existential crisis about why it exists. And, or, you know, or like cattle along the side of the road. Like, they're just content. They're just doing their thing, right? They're just eating grass, you know, uh, putting it out the other end, waiting for us to slaughter and enjoy the steak, right? Or the milk. Like, that, like they don't have this, this angst and longing for, like, meaning and, and, and something greater, something deeper. And so, so part of this struggle that, that we kind of share as humans is, is really indicative of, of our nature and our, and our image and, and how we're made. And it really should point us to something greater. Um, and really, you know, C.S. Lewis is the one that said, like, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can meet, then uh, the logical conclusion is I must be made for something outside of this world, right? Like, the, that if I find that, man, I just really struggle to know why life matters, what, what I am supposed to do, then I should be looking probably not to things within this world, but to something outside of this world. And I think that's where we find uh, purpose is, is knowing, um, knowing our story, knowing our creator, knowing why we're made and, and really what creates that, that need, that angst in us is because we're separated from our Savior. Like that's the whole point of Christianity, right? That, that we need God, but we are not uh, with God because of our sin, right? That we have walked away, we have separated ourselves. And so the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that God has come to, to make a way and bring us into himself. But then we don't always know what to do with the in-between, right? Like, okay, so Jesus has, has saved us and we know we get to go to heaven, but what, like, what about right now? Like, what about my today? Like, how do I, what, what do I do until then? And, um, and really, you know, it's this kind of angst, it's this kind of struggle that, that leads our world to all kinds of questions and all kinds of ink being spilled. I mean, the, the bookshelves of, you know, bookstores or, you know, virtual or physical um, are filled with self-help books, right? And, and what, you know, trying to answer this question of what is the meaning of life and how do you become a better you? And all of those things are, are driving. And really, even in the Christian world, like the, the 
best-selling book in the Christian world outside of the Bible was Rick Warren's Purpose-Driven Life. Like, there's a longing in all of us to know what is our purpose, what is the meaning, why are we here, uh, what is this for? And really, it's that drive, I think, that, that drives many of us to misuse the Scriptures a lot of times, right? Like, to misuse the Bible uh, for that self-help, that, you know, category. We make it about us, and we, we okay, what, what is the Bible? And we want to just kind of look at it and go, uh, really, and even well-meaning people have put these little acronyms on the scriptures and say, okay, well, the Bible, it's, it's, it's you know, God's instruction manual for life, right? Like, if you want to know how life works, look at the, look at the Bible. Or um, they break it down in a cute little acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. Or something. Have you guys heard something like that about the Bible, right? Like some cute little bitty saying about how we're supposed to approach the scriptures. And, and if you're honest, if you, if you do that, you think about the Bible, you just, it's this kind of treasure trove of little truth nuggets that you can pull out. Then if you read all of it, you're going to be really, really confused because there's some weird stuff in there, right? Especially you get in the Old Testament, you're like, I don't quite know how to apply that one. I'm just going to skip on to, you know, back to Philippians 4.13, right? right? Something that I'm good with. And really, Philippians itself is probably one of the, the biggest examples of people using the Bible in that way uh, because I think Philippians is a pretty short book, but probably per word count has the most, like, quotable coffee cup verses in any other book of the Bible, right? Like, there's all kinds of them that you're familiar with, whether you know they came from Philippians or not. You've heard the Philippians 4.13, right? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We, we, we know that um, <clears throat> the, the, we've heard the passage, for me to live is Christ, but and to die is gain. We, we hear the one, uh, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you, both to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. Uh, all these things come from Philippians. But the truth is, none of these, like, and what, what happens when, when we kind of view the Scripture in that way is that these statements get taken out of context and kind of take on a life all of them all in and of themselves, right? That it's not rooted in the bigger story, the bigger narrative of Philippians, which Philippians itself should be rooted in the bigger story of, of the Bible. And it starts to kind of be presented and used in some weird ways. Because the truth is, like learning to have joy in suffering is a good thing, but it's like on its own, just, just having that principle is not going to carry water whenever suffering actually comes, right? Like just knowing that you should have joy even in your suffering, that's not, in a, that's not enough. Knowing uh, about the personal growth that he encourages in Philippians 2, knowing about contentment that Paul talks about, right? To, to think about whatever's good, whatever's right, whatever's true, to think about those things, to have joy in all circumstances, to be a generous person. All of these are good principles, but if you take them out of the, the larger context of the scripture and the story in which they're being told, then they lose their impact. They lose the, the weight of that which they're supposed to actually be pointing us to. So the Bible's not meant to be used as kind of that just, you know, bucket of, of nuggets that we can just reach in and grab a little saying and, and use that. To, like, we need to view it as a, a, a narrative, as a large story. And when we understand it as such, I think that actually we get a glimpse into and some insight into what God is doing throughout history, right? And, and knowing that, knowing God's big story, it actually gives meaning to our personal stories. And that's, that's really the big idea behind our new series as we launch into the book of Philippians for eight weeks. Um, the series called His Glory, Our Joy. And so how knowing 
that all things are, are from God, by God, and moving toward God as victorious and winning, and, and knowing that even in our life, whatever's going on plays a part in that, and that it all points, it all leads to him getting glory, and if we see it in that way, then it'll actually also lead to us getting joy. That's kind of the big idea, and um, through this, this passage, through this incredible book of the Bible, I think we're going to see some really practical things about life, and how our our Christianity, our faith, what Jesus has purchased for us actually informs how we live in our day-to-day and actually informs those questions that we were talking about wrestling with earlier. Oh, why am I here and what is this for? What am I for and, and, and is this any good? All of those things, I think Paul is, <clears throat> is behind the big idea in the book of Philippians. And so uh, let's dive in here and let God's word kind of bring some clarity to what's going on, not only in history, but as we see that, some clarity to what's going on in our lives Personally, so if you uh, kept that open, let's look at Philippians chapter one, one through seven together. We're going to read uh, this and make some comments as we go um, and see what the Lord has for us. And so, what you see here is Paul. It says Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, um, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to read the rest of this, and I want to read about halfway down, and then we're going to make some comments about what Paul is talking about, because this is a very real moment in history to a very real people in history, and I think it's going to be helpful for us to see that. Verse 3, though, he says, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from, this, the, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so what you see here is this a man named Paul and his protege, Timothy, who are pastors, and they are writing to a church Plant. And so what you'll see is Paul has done this a lot. In fact, a lot of the books of your New Testament are the names of cities or areas where churches were found. And it's Paul's letters to the church at Philippi, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We call that Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. Like, and, and so this is, this is what all of those are. As many of them are written by Paul. And, and what was going on in these moments is Paul is, is writing back to a congregation, to a church that he had spent time with, planted, launched off, and then he would go on into other parts of the world, but he would write back to them and encourage them. This book in particular is unique because in most of Paul's letter letters to these churches, he's correcting a whole, uh, some stuff, if not a whole lot of stuff, right? Um, some of the longer books, Corinthians, you could see that's a, as a jacked up group of people. He had a whole lot of things to unload on them. But even in, in some of the other smaller books, you see that he's correcting some false doctrines, some, some different things. And so you got to think about this in real time. This is people in the first century that, you know, have believed in Jesus, have started Jesus communities. Um, and Paul is writing to them to kind of uh, teach them how they're actually supposed to live their life. And Philippians is unique because it doesn't contain correction. Paul is not writing to this church to correct any doctrine or behavior in them. He's really writing to encourage them um, and, and to encourage them to keep going. And so you'll see that he's referencing something that happened in the past that seems to be affecting the present. So this is Paul writing to all the saints that are in Philippi, um, and he, and he talks about because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and then later in verse 
Um, seven or verse six, he talks about them being uh, partakers with me of the gospel of grace. And so, what you what is really cool about the scriptures, and and sometimes I think we miss, is that he's talking about some events that are actually recorded in other parts of the Bible. And so if you know much about kind of how the New Testament specifically is set up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all um, different recordings of the life of Jesus, right? Those are, those are telling stories about what Jesus did while he was on earth. The, the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ are all contained from different perspectives written to different people in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. So that's really going to record from after Jesus' resurrection um, and into now what is the Acts of the early church. And so if you've read the book of Acts, you may know that there, um, you know, as these things get going, um, what happens is that there's a very real group of people that sends out missionaries because, okay, so to kind of catch all that back up, what's going on in this moment is, and here's, here's part of our story. This is why this matters, all right? Because we're actually, you need to know, you need to understand that you are here today Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether this is like you've been doing this for 30-something years every week, your family has been bringing you to church, or whether this is your first time, like you are here today as a part of a bigger story in history, right? That the gospel is here today being proclaimed to you in scriptures that you can read in your language, right? In a church that's in your town as a result of God's work through his church. Right? You need to think about that, that this very real historical implications that, that God didn't, you know, his work didn't begin in Marion, Illinois, in the United States of America, like that we are a part of the, the historical narrative, the redemptive work of Jesus that has been happening for thousands of years, that history is not disjointed from Christianity, right? That it's not this separate thing, this ethereal faith. This is a very real, on-the-ground thing that has happened, and the gospel got here somehow. And, and real quick, how it got here was, so Jesus, we all, we like, we're really familiar. We, act, we talk a lot about how Jesus is not like version 2.0 of God's plan. Jesus is the culmination of all that God had been doing in the Old Testament, right? Talk about that a lot. And then we're pretty familiar with what happened in the gospels, right? And Jesus coming to earth, his teachings, and the fact that he was um, killed on a criminal's cross, right? And that he, that he was buried in a tomb, that he stayed there for on, on the third day, he rose again unto life. Like we know those parts of the story. We celebrate those parts of the story as we should. But what we need to realize is that, that it didn't end there. It's not this isolated part of history or this thing that could have just happened in any moment. Like we don't always, we don't do well at thinking about our stories as a part of one big grand narrative, Right? That even Jesus being born in the moment that he was, in the place that he was, to the people that he was, is not just random or, you know, circumstantial. Like, it is the culmination of all that God has been doing, and it's the climax portion of God's story thus far. And once Jesus does his saving work on the cross, he says it is finished, he offers us salvation. It's no longer about uh, trying to fulfill the law or what we can do as people to earn our way back to God. Jesus says, no, it's finished. I've made a way. I am the Lamb um, uh, the Lamb of God who makes a way for sinners to become reconciled to God. So he does that, and then there's very real timelines and stories of Jesus coming back to life and hanging out on earth for like for 40 days, 
we, we don't think about that. And he's hanging out with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's reconciling them. He's restoring them, talking to them about, hey, this is what I told you I was doing. This is not the end of the story. Yeah, I'm about to leave, but you need to understand that something better is about to start. So Jesus ascends into heaven. We see this in Acts uh, chapter 1. Jesus is with his disciples, and he, he tells them, listen, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and now I'm going to commission you. Now you go and be my witnesses here in Jerusalem into Samaria, in Judea and in Samaria and to all the earth. And what he's saying is, I've conquered the enemy. I have fought the fight. Jesus drank in death and he spit out victory because it could not hold him the grave. Like Jesus wins, right? He has won the war. He is King Jesus. And he says, I am going to sit on my throne now. Going to the Father's side, I'm going to sit on my throne now, and I'm going to stay there until all my enemies have been made my footstool. And in that moment, I'll come back and restore this whole thing, and we'll have a party forever. Right? So King Jesus has now fought our battle. He is our victorious Savior. But there's this in between. There's this already. He has already won. He has purchased salvation for his people. But he says, my kingdom is going to go forth. It's not just about you people right here on that mountain with him. He says, I want you to go and tell all nations. I want you to go tell all people groups that they can be saved through the work that I've done. So he commissions these people. He tells them to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he's taught them. And he sends them out. He says, you're going to be my witnesses here and then broader out to their area, then to their country, and then to the ends of the earth. And we, we celebrate that, we think about that, but you need to like realize that then that actually begins to happen. The book of Acts is the first like stories of how that happens. So the people go back to the to the you know Jerusalem, they're 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 waiting. God says, I'm gonna send this, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, right? So Jesus says, It's actually better that I go so I could send the Spirit to you. He sends the Spirit, they falls on the people, and this incredible work of the Lord begins to to spread as people believe in Jesus as the Savior, and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And what happens is you fast forward to Acts 13. I'm leaving a lot out there, but you fast forward to Acts 13, and there's this group of believers gathered in a church, much like ours today, uh, gathered together, uh, singing songs, hearing preaching from the word, worshiping and praying. And God sets apart two people and, and says, I want you to send out Paul and Barnabas. I want you to send them out as missionaries to the nations. That this, this message is not just for Jews. It's not just for the people in Jerusalem and Judea, but it is for everybody on the earth. And I want you to send these two out as specific set-apart missionaries to go to nations. And so what we see is that actually happens. Very real people in a very real church gathering lay hands on two normal men, right? Not varsity Christians. In fact, Paul used to be a guy who killed Christians, right? But he's been saved. He's been around the church for a few years now. And they're going to send them out into the world as missionaries. And so that is how the gospel gets out of the area. Cindy, if you'll pull up that map. Did it make it on there? I messed up our slides today. Okay. So if you look at your, your map, you know where you know, Jerusalem is. Uh, much, so Paul takes off and he goes into those immediate areas in uh, Asia Minor and those areas. And he goes on a mission trip and he plants all kinds of churches. And, and this is what he would do. He would go and not just declare and uh, say, hey, you get saved and pray a prayer, right? Okay, you're good. You'll go to heaven when you die. And then he just leaves. No, he starts churches. He does that once. 
Um, there's a whole story that goes on. And people are like, whoa, is this for Jews? And, Jews? and there's this council that happens. And they say, yeah, actually, God is working amongst the Gentiles. And then Paul's going to go back out. And he wants to encourage all the churches that he's planted before he goes on a second missionary journey. And as he's trying to just go back into the same churches, the Lord says, no, no, I don't want you to go, I don't want you to go south. And they say, okay, well, maybe you should go north. And he said, no. And the Spirit stops him there. And then God gives him a vision and says, you should come uh, west to Macedonia. You should come to this area that is now modern-day Greece, right? And so the gospel begins to leave uh, Jerusalem and Judea and that area of Asia and move into what is Europe. Uh, And so God sends them into this city called Philippi, and that's where uh, this And so you need to see this is a part of our story, that the gospel is moving from where it started in Jerusalem into the other areas of the world, which will eventually, right, skip a whole bunch of history here, but it's eventually going to end up here in America, where you and I have heard, right? That's a part of our story. But what you need to know is that these are very real people that, that Paul encountered. As he, as he enters the city of Philippi, this is a Roman colony that is settled um, really as a, as, a, as a place where Roman citizens, particularly soldiers, can kind of retire. They get a tax break, and it's this really um, pretty wealthy city. It's not huge, though. Uh, and this is where Paul goes, and it's, so, it's Roman influence. There's not even a synagogue there. In order to have a Jewish synagogue, there had to be 10 Jewish men in the area to, to have a quorum to you know, start a gathering like that. There wasn't such. So Paul goes in, and he's looking. That's where he would start usually. He'd start in a synagogue. He'd say, hey, all this stuff you're worshiping, about, all this stuff you know about what God's done in the history of the Jews— it all took, found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he would point them to Jesus and people would believe they would plant churches and then go on to the next place. Well, Paul gets here and there is no church. There's no synagogue. There's no uh, people that even know about what God has done through his people of, they know about the Jewish people, but they don't know the story of why and what all God is doing. But Paul stumbles on these, these women that are really having this Bible study, this lady named Lydia, who is this, you can find all this in Acts 16. I'm encouraging community groups to read that together tonight. But in Acts 16, you find this very real story of Paul planning the church at Philippi. And what I need you to know is that these are very real people who are saved out of their ordinary, jacked up lives and into an incredible work unto the Lord. And this lady named Lydia in chapter 16, it says she's a a seller of purple goods. It's a weird way to say that she's like a fashionista, like she has built a fashion empire. We see that she has a home here, even though she's from Thyatira, like she's Asian, but she has a home here in Philippi as well. So she is very much a fashion mogul that has somebody, you know, similarly would have a home in New York and in LA in our day and age. Like this is this woman, she's very well-to-do, but she's a God-fearer, which just simply means she's rejected the paganism of the day. She doesn't believe that there are a whole bunch of gods. She believes there's one God. And so they're kind of walking through the Old Testament scriptures and different writings and trying to figure this out. They're having this Bible study. Paul shows up and says, hey, let me tell you about the gospel. She gets radically saved. So much so that she says, hey, you, you come and like, all of you come and, and be in my house. I want to host you. I wanna, let's start this church. And, and as they're going, they, they leave this place where they, they, Lydia, this wealthy fashionista gets saved. And at, part of the story just right after that is they run into this slave girl who's a fortune teller. And the Bible says that she is demon-possessed. And she's making her owner's money by telling fortunes, right? People are paying to say, hey, tell me my future. And this little girl is demon-possessed, so she's telling these, few, these fortunes. And she follows them around and starts saying things about Paul and Barnabas. And Paul finally gets sick of it, kicks that demon out. That little girl gets saved in that moment, joins the, the group of Jesus followers. Lydia and her whole household got saved. Now there's this slave, homeless girl 
demon-possessed girl is joining, like Lydia and her do not run in the same social circles, right? But, but God brings them together in this moment. And because of that, the owners of this slave girl, they're now losing their income, right? And so they get angry and take Paul and Barnabas before the, the rulers of the day, the magistrates in Philippi, and they bring them here and they, 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 um, they say, hey, these guys are unlawful. They, they've basically stolen from me because now my slave girl is no longer doing her thing. And, um, and so Paul and Barnabas get locked up. Right, and they get put in stocks. So you got to think this is an old Roman retirement village. Like this is probably an old retired Roman soldier, and they put Paul and Barnabas in stocks. And that's not just like the the you know what we kind of picture of hands and and head in there. Like this is something to do with their feet that kind of twist their bodies in weird ways, and they're not able to get comfortable. They're not able to sleep for days on end because of the, the way that their bodies are contorted into these different shapes. But what, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas start singing hymns. I don't know if they're out of their mind, like delirious because they can't sleep and they're just, uh, you know, or if it's just an intentional way to get their mind, but they start singing hymns about Jesus and God shows up, does this incredible work. There's an earthquake and all their stock, like the, the, Prisoners are all set free because the, the, the chains break and they're able to go free. So Paul and Barnabas are now out of their jail cell. The, the ruler, that is, the, the soldier that is set before them to watch them thinks that he's going to get executed because he has failed on his job. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all right here. God did that. God set us free. And that guy, that hardened guy that put them in the, the stocks, right? You got to think that dude's pretty rough, probably roughed them up, beat them. Like he's, he's a pretty calloused individual. That guy gets saved. He, he says, okay, I don't know why you jokers are singing when I've got you all twisted up in socks. I don't know how you just got free. I can't explain it. But you need to tell me what, like I'll have some of whatever you got, right? Like whatever, you tell me whatever I got to do to be saved. And so this guy and his whole household gets saved. And this is how the church at Philippi starts. So they don't know what to do with them. So they, they kick them out of the city, but before they, they gather back at Lydia's house, and this is the, the start of the church at Philippi. And so what I need you to know is that, that, that this very real people, Paul, Paul and Barnabas are sent, they plant this church, and then God uses this church. This is, this is part of what's going to keep moving the gospel forward and westward and into the rest of the world is these normal, everyday, very different, not raised in church, not seminary-driven people, but they are used by God in incredible ways. You'll see them mentioned um, in a couple of different parts of the scripture, like that God celebrates in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He talks about like uh, how generous these people have been and how they've advanced the mission of God. And so it is to these people that Paul is writing this encouragement of the letter of Philippians. And what we begin to see is it's very real boots on the ground, advancement of the gospel. Part of their story is that God sends them these missionaries, they believe upon Jesus Christ, and then the church grows and influences. So we see that it's no longer just those people, because as Paul writes in verse uh, 1, he says, to the overseers and the deacons that are among you, to all the saints that are among you, they got, over, they got pastors now, they got deacons, they got other leaders, so this church has grown. Most uh, scholars believe this is about 10 years later now, and Paul is in prison again, writing this letter back to his people at Philippi. And you can, you, you can hear the fondness in his voice whenever he, he's talking about, he always kind of has these formalities when he opens his letters, but you can hear the fondness, the richness of this relationship that he, that he really is endearing toward these people because that's their story. Like they, they were 
bound together by this incredible story that you can find in Acts 16. So Paul loves these people, and he's writing to them really to thank them for a gift that they sent. They heard Paul was in prison, so they send one of their dudes, Epaphroditus. We'll read about him later. They send him with a gift, a financial offering. Say, hey, go make sure Paul has everything he needs. Make sure he's taken care of. We love him. We're not ashamed of him. A lot of times whenever Paul, these guys would get locked up, the churches would be ashamed of him and not want to claim. But these guys say, no, 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 we, we love that guy. He's, he's why we have life in Jesus Christ. And so they send a gift to support him. And this is, he sends this letter back with Epaphroditus to encourage um, and, and exhort them to continue on in the work that they have, they've done so far. And so what we need to see from this, first and foremost, is that we are recipients of grace as a result of God working through his church. We, you and I, are recipients of grace as a, as a result of God working through his church. It's the church at Antioch in Acts 13 that sends out Paul and Barnabas. Praise God for them, right? It's the church at Philippi then that partners with Paul and continues funding his mission, continues uh, supporting and encouraging him, that, that continues the advancement. I, I have no doubt that they sent out their own missionaries, that, that they continue to grow and influence the area, and that Christianity continued to move through them. And so we need to, under, if we're going to understand the meaning of life, the purpose, purpose behind our own lives, we need to understand what God is doing in his big picture story, and that that itself gives us meaning in our own personal story. God's big story of redemption gives us meaning and purpose to our life. Some of you, it's not really about the existential, just what is life about. Some of you, it's very personal. Like, you don't know if you matter, right? And, and that could be because of some things that were done to you. That could be because of the message that you received as a child seemed to say that you didn't matter. That could be for a whole list of reasons. But what you need to know, however you got here today, whatever your story is, God's word says you have value, so much so. John, John 3.16 is not just this ethereal verse that God so loved the world that he gave it, but God so loved you. You. Whatever your name is, whatever you've brought into the, God loved you so much that he sent Jesus. Philippians 2 is going to talk about how Jesus steps off his throne and into our mess so that we could have life. Like, loves you so much but he sent Jesus, not to wait till you got it figured out, not to wait till you solved your crisis and you realized you were worth something, but to come and declare. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And that stands to, to scream. And Paul says uh, in verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, Paul doesn't care about these people apart from Jesus caring about Paul, right? And Jesus caring about these people, right? The affection of Jesus is described, John 3, 16, Romans 5, 8, the affection of Jesus is displayed on the cross. Jesus died for you to say that I, I see you, I know what's been done to you, I know what you've done to others, and I still love you. Though your sins be as scarlet, it says in Isaiah, come, come to me. Don't figure it out and they, come to me. With your sins, with your filth, come to me. I'll make them white as snow. God's big story of redemption gives your own personal life meaning. Then it's going to give your own personal life purpose as well. So not only are we valued and saved by God, and that's not anything we've done on our own, right? It, Paul says there 
in verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, right? This is not, you didn't make the first step toward salvation, right? Uh, you, like God initiated saving you. God initiated this good work. He's pursued you. Whatever circumstances he's put together to bring you into his fold, like that, God did that. And because God began this work and you knew he's going to finish it, and it's not just about you now. It's not just like, okay, well, we're good. Uh, you know, God got so-and-so, so his mission's over. Like, we are recipients of grace because of the work that God did through his church, but we are also saved into the same commissioned and empowered church. Right? So we're recipients of grace because of God, what God has done through the church, and we're also saved into that same church that is still sent, that is still empowered, still equipped to go forward. Like the mission is not over. There's still Lydia's out there that need to be saved. There's still slave girls that are still possessed, wrestling with their, their demons and in bondage to sin that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are still blue-collar, rough, around-the-edges men that Jesus wants to save and soften and give a new heart. You need to see your life, your hearing of the gospel as a result of all that God has done in the past. You need to know that he's still heading toward that end. We've talked about this a few weeks ago, but but Jesus told us how this is all going to end. He says, when the gospel, like King Jesus is now on his throne, he says, I'm going to make all my enemies my footstool. So what he's saying here, just like a king that, comes into power and is going to advance his kingdom. It's going to happen slowly often, right? One territory at a time. One, and for Jesus, it's one person, one heart, one people group at a time. He's going forward, and, and his people are sent forward as his ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, to tell people that, yes, there is a God, and yes, there is a standard of righteousness and holiness, and we've all failed to meet it. But he sent someone to meet it for us. And Jesus is the way to salvation. And anybody who will claim the name of Jesus, trust in him as their Savior, repent from our sins and trust in Jesus as our Savior, can be pardoned, can be purchased into this family and receive forgiveness. That's what's happening right now. We have benefited from that, but it's still going on. There's still billions of people Thousands of people groups who don't yet know the name of Jesus. And that's what he's doing. He's sending his church out and into those areas of the earth. And when that's finished, he'll come back. He'll do away with all that is evil. And those who didn't trust him will be sent away forever into a a, a place of eternal torment. For those of us who have claimed, thrown ourselves onto Jesus, trusted him as our Savior, we will rule with him and have life Ever. That's the, the big grand story of what's going on and very, very real right now. God is still doing a redemptive work in the midst of this broken, discouraging world. And so you're saved into this church. You're not, not the journey specifically, but God's people, the church. We're saved into this family as a part of being recipients of that grace. We're now, Paul says, not only are we partakers of this grace, we are now partners with it with him in the same gospel of grace. And so he begins to exhort them and say, listen, because of your partnership, verse five, in the gospel from the first day until now, from the very first moment that Lydia got saved, she offered up her home, her finances, and her whatever she had in order that other people would, would be saved. You need to, like, 
Put yourself in that moment. Put yourself in their shoes. These are people gathering in this Roman colony of Philippi. It's a pagan worship place. Like They don't know about Yahweh. They don't know about Jesus Christ. And here comes Paul and Barnabas telling them this good news of salvation. And they see their own life change. They, they see the chains fall off of their own heart. And in that moment, they're not mistaken that, oh, there's another church that'll reach these, my neighbors and these other cities, these other people. There's another people. Like, they know, like, oh, man, the rest of the world has to hear about this, right? Because it, they're not there yet, right? Like, they understand that they are on the edge of the gospel advancing in that moment, and they, they realize that there's others that need to hear, need to know, and, and other missionaries that need to be sent, and so they immediately start living their life and doing their church in such a way that is to that end, right? To send more people, to send more money, to send more encouragement, to grow more missionaries, to grow more pastors, preachers, and teachers so that the gospel can be declared. Like there's no mistake for them the cost that is before them if the gospel doesn't go forward. Like it's very, very clear. For us, this is more difficult sometimes, right? You drove by 14 churches to get here this morning. You're kind of raised in this. You, you, you just assume that everybody else knows. And, um, and listen, part of that is People around us have been so jaded and kind of hurt by the church that they don't understand the true gospel. And so even they need us to be the people of God and be the salt and light in our region. But even more practically, more urgently, there are people, there are nations, there are tribes in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And it's just as urgent today that the church take that responsibility to be sending out, supporting encouraging missionaries to go to the nations. So as I said a few weeks ago, it was my hope and prayer, and I really believe in faith that God is going to raise up more and more people. We have Diamond sitting right here in our midst that's about to go to Berlin in a few weeks. I believe he's going to call more of you to, to leave your, your, your homes here and go and make your homes amongst indigenous people groups and proclaim the name of Jesus. And that, the, that that's not something we just farm out to some you know, mission group, mission agency, but that's the church's responsibility, that, that we all play a part in that. So maybe you're not the one that gets called and goes like, like Diamond, but think about the ones who keep earning their income and keep giving to the church. Think about the ones who keep the church running. And what you see is God paints this beautiful picture of everybody has a gift, everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ. And we all become not only partakers of this grace, but we become partners of this gospel of grace. And we, we become, like, so there's a very real tangible thing that God is doing in and through his church. And that includes us. Like, today, there is a point to our existence as his people. His cross, the gospel, declares that we have meaning and purpose and hope because Jesus says that we do. Jesus loves us, gave his life, saved us. And then, individually and corporately as a church like we have a purpose now we are partners in this gospel we're not we are saved into the sent and empowered church or the, the mission is not over there's still more that need to hear and so that's where we need to start thinking about okay how does the lord want to use us and for some of you like you're already doing it you're loving like you're leading a community group you're you're loving on people you're you're uh, serving people that like are in foster care you need to understand like even that stuff when we talk about this that is Jesus reconciling the world into himself and he does it through his church and so as we be the people of God in and amongst our neighborhoods and all the way to the nations as we love our neighbor as ourselves as we live that out and live lives of generosity live lives of hospitality 
that God wants to use us in his grand story. That there are other people just like you and I that need to understand, that need to hear the good news of the gospel. The church is not about pretending and putting on your best and going and paying some penance. People, people kind of chuckle about us here at the journey of you know, how honest we are and like we just got a lot of jacked up people and we're like, I don't, I heard somebody say, I don't think we're actually that much different than other churches in America. We just, we're just open about it. Right? We just put it out there. Right? And we want to say that regularly. Like We're not trying to pretend here at the journey. We want it to be a place that it's okay to say, I'm not okay. And you could say that before the house is on fire and, you know, before you're, you're, you're considering suicide or before your marriage is in a mess or before you've, you've you know, got into it. Like, like, you can admit, like, hey, I'm struggling. And as we embody that, we live that out and we invite others into that, God is using this church, the Journey Church, not just our church, but the churches in our area. Like, he has a purpose and it's not just about us. This is how churches get all jacked up and get caught up on weird things, right? When we forget the grand story, the mission of God, we start worrying about, well, I don't know, they're not singing the music I like. They don't have the chairs I want. They don't have this color of walls. They don't have, the pastor doesn't tell enough jokes. He doesn't talk long enough. He talks too long. Whatever. We start having all these weird opinions about what church should be because we forget what Jesus has told us the church should be. It's a community of believers on mission to the world. Amen? Not not perfect people, but people who have found a perfect Savior. So how do you need to adjust your own personal life? How you view yourself, your role at the church? Paul says, verse 9, is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he doesn't say, hey, you guys are nailing it. You get to just sit back and relax and wait till Jesus comes. He says, no, my prayer is that you keep getting more and more love, that your love grows, that you understand your love for God, your love for people, and it continues to grow. And, you'll, and because of that, you need to, like, you need to know that Christianity is just starting. They're, they're need, they, they don't know what's true and what's not. They all don't have their own copy of the scriptures. And, and so Paul says, listen, you need to keep longing for the mission of Jesus to be complete. And as you do that, your love will grow abound more and more in verse 9. With knowledge and all discernment, you'll be able to tell false teachers from true teachers so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's where our eyes are to the day that Jesus comes. We need to be living to that end and offering our lives to that end. Whatever he would have us do, however we can make much of his name, that's how we should be living our lives. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's saying, when you have that framework, you realize you're a recipient of grace because others have been obedient then you start to live your life in a way that you're just obedient and try to be a blessing so that others could be recipients of grace. And it's all about God's glory. When we live for God's glory, sometimes we feel like God's trying to take from us in that, right? Like, oh, he won't let me have this, or I just want to have that. He's trying to lead us into life. He's saying, when you live for my glory, something switches in you. That burning question of, does my life matter? Does it have meaning? What's my purpose? All of a sudden, that that is filled up. All of a sudden, you understand what your purpose is. It's to make much of Jesus Christ. And it's through his glory that we find our own joy in all circumstances of life. And that's what the book of Philippians is going to walk us through. But today, how do you need to change your perspective, your own personal life, your own meaning of life? You need, you need to repent and trust Jesus. If, if, you, if you're here and you've never received this grace, then you need to know that today you can. That today... Jesus declares you have value because of his work on the cross. 
and he invites you to come and receive new life. You can do that today. You can do that right in your seat. You can come pray at the end. Like, we'd love to, to walk you through it. But the Bible just says you trust in Jesus. You declare that you need a Savior because you're a sinner, and you declare that Jesus is that Savior. The Bible says you will be saved. You can do that today. For the rest of us, man, how do you need to change your perspective on life? How do you need to start uh, looking at things differently, both your personal life and the church? What, what, what would it look like, church? if we believe this to be true, that we are a part of God's grand narrative, the kingdom of God going forward in the world, that he actually wants to use people like you and I to reach people like you and I and other nations that have never heard the name of Jesus. Would we dream a little bigger? Would we give a little more? Would we think a little differently? Would we serve with a different kind of zeal? What would it look like if the church actually believed that God is gonna do what he said he's gonna do and he's gonna do it through us? How would we live differently? What kind of impact would that make in how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend the, the spaces in our home? Who do we invite to our dinner table? Who do we let take a bed that, that needs one? How, how do we spend our lives? How does Jesus want to use us? Let's think about that as we pray. God, thank you for saving us. Though we didn't deserve it, that we didn't execute any kind of plan to make ourselves worthy. You just set your affection on us and made a way. Would you give us eyes to see your story in history? Would you give us faith to respond, to play our part in your story? And through that, Lord, would you bring redemption and hope, and meaning to the lives across this room. Jesus, would you be big in this moment as we pray and respond to you? Would you do a work in our hearts? Call us into yourself. We ask these things in your name. Amen.